You're listening to a sermon preached at Cross and Crown in Melbourne. We believe that God speaks through the Bible and He calls us to preach the Word and proclaim His Gospel. We pray that as you listen, you will be strengthened to know, love and live for Jesus. God of our redemption, we cry out to you from our brokenness and despair. Hear our cry. Remember your promise and rescue your people. In Jesus' name. Amen. You know, some time ago I bumped into an old friend. And normally when you bump into an old friend, you're pretty excited to see them, aren't you? But when I looked at this friend, something wasn't quite the same. In fact, he looked like a shell of his former self. His eyes were weary. His face was gaunt. He he looked like he was carrying a thousand burdens on him. The next week, I invited him over for dinner. And I discovered that in those years, his marriage had failed. He had lost his job and he was abandoned by all his friends. Sitting in my living room was a man who was broken. Together, where we opened the Bible and we reminded ourselves of God's every promise But it was one of those rare moments where when you read the Bible, it just doesn't hit your heart. My friend was so crushed that these promises fell on deaf ears. It was as if he just couldn't hear these words. It was as if his suffering had silenced the voice of God. You know, that is the situation into which Exodus chapter 6 is written. God's promises come to a people whose spirits are broken. Previously, in the story of God, God promised to restore this world through Abraham's children. Through this one family, God would, God's people would once again live in his kingdom with God as their king. They would be a model of God's master plan for his new world. And right throughout Genesis, if you read it, you'll see that God honors that promise. He honors that promise to Abraham, to his son Isaac to his son Jacob, and to his son Joseph. Generation after generation, God proves himself faithful. And by the end of Genesis, Israel has grown just in line with God's promises. But they're living in Egypt, and they're living under Pharaoh. There's a sense in which only one third of God's promises have been fulfilled here. Israel, they might be God's people, but they don't live in God's kingdom and they don't live with God as their king. And the situation worsens in Exodus. Look with me at Exodus chapter 1 verses 8 to 12. A new king who did not know about Joseph came to power in Egypt. He said to his people, look, the Israelite people are more numerous and powerful than we are. Come, let's deal shrewdly with them, otherwise they'll multiply further, and when war breaks out, they'll join our enemies, fight against us, and leave the country. So the Egyptians assigned taskmasters over the Israelites to oppress them with forced labor. They built Pithom and Ramses as supply cities for Pharaoh. But the more they oppressed them, the more they multiplied and spread, so that the Egyptians came to dread the Israelites. Friends, can you see what's going on here? Israel is oppressed, crushed, and enslaved. They're hopeless and they're helpless. And just like my friend, their spirits are broken. 
Just imagine being in their position for one moment. You can imagine, can't you, the questions that they're asking. Has God forgotten his promise? Has God forsaken his people? And Exodus 6 gives us one resounding no. God remembers his promise and he rescues his people. Act 4, redemption. At the end of um, chapter 5, Moses returns from confronting Pharaoh for the first time. And as far as first meetings go, this was an absolute disaster. So what what does Moses do? He complains to God. This is what he says. Ever since I went into Pharaoh to speak in your name, he has caused trouble for this people. Hear this. You haven't rescued your people at all. I mean, can can you hear the sharpness of that accusation against God? This is your fault. But but look at how God responds to Moses in chapter 6, verse 2. I am the Lord. Now, whenever we see those capitalized letters, L-O-R-D, it's code for God's personal name. Uh, In Hebrew, it's nothing more than a series of consonants. Y-H-W-H. And the closest we get to pronounce that name is Yahweh. We might read this verse as God saying, I am Yahweh. God is distinguishing himself from every other so-called God. And this special name, it identifies him as the God who has a special relationship with Israel. Just imagine. After 400 years of oppression, the loneliness and abandonment that Israel must have been feeling. And then imagine the comfort at hearing God's name. It's like that father who confronts his crying daughter. He he takes her in his arms. He wipes away her tears. And he says to her, it's me. It's your dad. You know, every time in the Old Testament when God uses this name, he is invoking that promise that he first made to Abraham back in Genesis 12. He's reminding Israel, I'm still committed to you. That's why he reminds them in verse 3 that I appeared to Abraham, Isaac, Jacob as God Almighty. The very God who made a promise to Abraham back in Genesis 12. He is exactly the same God who's speaking to Israel here in Exodus 6. 400 years might separate these two events, but 400 years and an eternity cannot separate the faithfulness of God from his people. That title, God Almighty, El Shaddai, it means that God is sufficient for all our needs. That's exactly who he was for Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. He was sufficient for all their needs. He protected them from every danger. He provided for them in every way. But even that provision all throughout Genesis, it can't compare to what God is about to do for Israel here in Exodus. But look at verse 3. He says, I was not known to them by my name Yahweh. Now this is pretty awkward if you know your Bible because on one level, it's just not true. In Genesis 15, 7 and 28, 13, we find that name, Yahweh. In fact, we find that very same phrase, I am Yahweh. 
So what does God mean? He's clearly said it before, so he can't be saying they didn't know that was my name. You know, in many cultures, in fact, many of the cultures from which you guys come, our names represent the best of who we are. The highest aspirations of who we might be. Our parents' highest hopes for us. And it's always that question, isn't it? Do we live up to our names? So, here's a sample. The name Davina means beloved. The name Cedric means battlefield chieftain. It's fitting, isn't it? And the name Shine or Sine means peaceful like a river. Do you think they live up to that name? Do we live up to our name? My name means dirt, so it's not that hard. When God says, I was, known to th- I was not known to them by my name, Yahweh, he's not saying they didn't know my name. No, he's saying they didn't know the fullness of my character. They didn't know what it means for me to be Yahweh. But Moses, Israel, you're about to find out. What does it mean that I am Yahweh? It means that I fulfill my every promise. Just look there at verse 4. That's exactly what he's saying. I also established my covenant, there it is, my promise with them to give them the land of Canaan, the land they lived in as aliens. Can, Can you see? God's name, God's identity, God's character is deeply connected with God's promise. Can you hear what God is saying to this broken, crushed and dispirited people? I made a promise to your forefathers, a promise to bring them home. And now I'm going to fulfill that promise to you. Do you remember that dad we talked about last last week? He now returns to his kids and he says, kids, one year ago, you guys wrote your names in the wet cement, in the foundations of our new home. Well, guess what? The time has come. We're going home. And then we read what may very well be the most moving and poignant verse in all of Exodus. And when you just feel the force, the pathos of what is spoken here, I have heard the groaning of the Israelites, whom the Egyptians are forcing to work as slaves, and I have remembered my covenant. Isn't that beautiful? Can you hear the tenderness in God's voice? I hear your cry. I remember my promise. Just imagine how they must have felt. God created us in his own image. He created us, called us, and made us a promise in love. He promises that we would be his people, that we would live in his kingdom, that we would be blessed with him as our king. But look at us now, humiliated as slaves, not exalted as kings, captive in Egypt, not resting in Canaan, oppressed by Pharaoh, not blessed by Yahweh. Just imagine how distant God must have felt, how empty their cries must have felt, how hopeless their prayers must have felt. Maybe you can deeply empathize with how they feel. Imagine their agony as they would have screamed out to God, Where are you? Have you forgotten us? What about your promise? 
have you forsaken us? And into that hopeless void, God speaks tender words of care. I hear your cry. I remember my covenant. Now, don't worry. It's not as if God ever forgot it. That's not what it means when it says God remembered his covenant. No, it means that God is calling his promise to mind. He's about to act on his promise. He's about to fulfill his promise. Get ready because in verses 6 to 8, God is going to rescue his people. Notice that in verses 6 and 8, these verses bookend this section with that same refrain. There it is again. I am Yahweh. It's as if God is party to a contract and he's signing his name on it. At the top of the document, party, Yahweh. And at the bottom, signed, Yahweh. Now you might think, after 400 years, surely this contract has expired by now. You might think, surely God has abandoned and repudiated his obligations, but nothing could be further from the truth. God is saying, I am as good as my name. My word is my bond. Don't you doubt it. Watch me now in these three verses as I fulfill every last term and condition of this contract. And in these three verses, we find the promises that God fulfills. Firstly, it's right there. I'll bring you out from the forced labor of the Egyptians and rescue you from slavery to them. Just like that tag team swoops in and rescues hostages who are helpless to save themselves. So too now will Yahweh sweep in and save Israel out of slavery to Egypt. He will bring an end to their forced labor. He will free them from their oppression. Secondly, I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and great acts of judgment. Now, when we talk about someone's redemption, we often have in mind someone's restoration, their comeback. Uh, Just think about that classic movie, The Shawshank Redemption, where, where Andy Dufresne is falsely imprisoned for the murder of his wife. And we witness the eventual escape from prison, his restoration. We witness his redemption. But redemption is never free. Redemption always has its cost. You know, in the ancient Near East, redemption describes someone buying back a plot of land. It's commercial. It's transactional. There's always a quid pro quo. But but in those days, you wouldn't just redeem a property. No, you would redeem a person. You would redeem a slave. Have you seen the movie Gladiator? It's an oldie, but a goodie. And if you've seen it, you might remember that scene where Maximus is held in a slave market and then is sold to a gladiator trainer called Proximo. Proximo purchases Maximus, a few other slaves and some cattle for a mere $5,000. He redeems Maximus. That's the picture of redemption in the Bible. And that's something of what Yahweh promises to, to, to do for Israel. He will buy them back with an outstretched arm and great acts of judgment. Now, let's be clear. This isn't saying that God has a physical arm that's somehow going to rescue Israel and judge Egypt. 
No, just like verse 5 said, that Yahweh remembers his covenant. This verse is using vivid, human, physical language to describe God. He's painting a picture of how God will rescue his people. God will rescue them just like Proximo rescued Maximus. He will redeem them just like Proximo redeemed Maximus. But redemption is never free. Redemption always has its price. And Yahweh, God Almighty, is willing to pay whatever the price to redeem his people. And we Christians know that in the end, God redeems us at the cost of his own son. The ransom price that God pays to set us free, not from slavery to Egypt, but from slavery to sin, is not a mere $5,000. It's the precious blood of his only beloved son. For those of you who have seen Gladiator, do you remember what happens after Proximo redeems Maximus. He makes him a gladiator. Now that sounds cool, but it's really not. A gladiator is a fighter destined to die for the entertainment of the masses. A gladiator has no more value than a beast. No, no, Proximo, he redeems Maximus out of slavery, but into sure and certain slaughter. That is not the picture of Yahweh redeeming Israel. No, Yahweh redeems Israel out of slavery and into his kingdom. Just look at verse 7. I'll take you as my people and I'll be your God. You will know that I am Yahweh your God who brought you out from the forced labor of the Egyptians. Do you see, God will fulfill the promise that he first made to Abraham back in Genesis 12. 15 and 17, I will be your God and you will be my people. Just think about that. Once again, Abraham's children will live with God as their king. That the relationship that was broken by Adam's sin, that was broken by Egypt's power, will once again be restored. Once again, they'll be God's own people. Once again, God will bring them into the land that he promised to give them. In verse 8, it's the land that I swore to give to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. We need to just stop and pause and just feel the force of what's going on here. We might be familiar with these events only through watching the Prince of Egypt. And that so diminishes everything that we see here. Now, what we see is absolutely amazing because God is rescuing his people, not just out of slavery, but into his kingdom. He's rescuing them into his promises. And what we see in these verses, it's a model and a mirror of what Jesus has done for us. It foreshadows a second exodus, a greater redemption. It points forward to the day on which you and I receive the promises that God made to Abraham. Galatians chapter 3 verse 29 says this, If you belong to Christ, as we Christians do, then you are Abraham's seed, heirs according to the promise. Just think about that. The promise that God made to Abraham all those years ago 
The promise that he fulfilled only partially in Moses all those years ago is the very same promise that he makes and fulfills to us in Jesus. Just like the people of Israel, you and I were enslaved, unable to save ourselves. But we were not enslaved to Egypt. We were not enslaved to some earthly or worldly power. No, the God who redeemed Israel out of slavery to Egypt is the God who redeems us out of slavery to sin. I can't wait for the day when we preach through Galatians. It's an amazing book. And this probably is my favorite part of the letter. Look at it there in Galatians 4 verses 4 to 7. When the time came to completion, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law. And here's that word, to redeem those under the law. So that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. And notice this movement. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then God has made you an heir. Isn't that beautiful? Proximo redeemed Maximus out of slavery and into a slaughter. Yahweh redeemed Israel out of slavery and into his kingdom. Fellow Christian, brothers and sisters in the Lord Jesus Christ, Jesus has redeemed you and me out of slavery and made us his sons. God has not saved us only to abandon us. No, he's saved us so that he might adopt us. To a people whose spirits are crushed. To a people whose hearts are broken. God speaks this word of assurance. I hear your cry. I remember my promise. I rescue my people. What sweet relief. God remembers. And God acts. You know, it was a number of years ago, I remember, I, I was going through a pretty dif- difficult time. And I was struggling at that time through bouts of anxiety. And, and I remember that my whole life, it just looked grey. It was as if the promises of God in the Bible, which now shine so brightly today, were just dull. No sermon, no word, no encouragement could penetrate my dark heart. And in some small way, I think I resonated just a bit with Israel. It felt like my suffering had silenced the voice of God. That describes something of how Israel feels here in Exodus 6. Because, you know, if verse 5 is the most moving and poignant verse in this book, then I think verse 9 has to be one of its most tragic and heartbreaking Even though Israel has just heard the words which should be sweet comfort to their souls, they did not listen to Moses because of their broken spirit and hard labor. Their grief is so great, their pain so profound, that it feels like their suffering has silenced God's every promise. God's promises fall on deaf ears. The situation just goes from bad to worse. 
Moses, God's appointed representative, he cannot speak. This is what he says. If the Israelites won't listen to me, how will Pharaoh listen to me? Since I am such a poor speaker. It's funny, isn't it? You read Genesis and now Exodus, and and we saw back in Genesis, God chose Abraham, an insignificant man with a barren wife, to be the model of his master plan for his new world. Here in Exodus 6, God chooses Moses, an 80-year-old geriatric, to be the warrior saviour of his people. You could be forgiven for thinking that God is just the world's worst headhunter. Can you feel the weight of our problem? Israel is so heartbroken that it will not listen. Pharaoh, so proud that he will not listen. Moses, so timid that he will not speak. But that's exactly the kind of situation that God loves to deal with. In fact, he specializes in cases just like this. In verse 13, we read these familiar words, simple words, easy to gloss over, but don't. Here are those words. Then the Lord spoke. Then Yahweh spoke. Or we might remember, and God said. The same word which created this world in love. The same word which cursed this world in judgment. The same word which promised a new world in hope now is the word that rescues a people in power. God is about to act. God speaks when we cannot. God acts when we cannot. God saves when we cannot. Friends, God specializes in moments of great need because when we are weak, then he is strong. Can you see this passage? It actually invites us to embrace our brokenness and weakness. Because only then will we truly see God's strength and sympathy. Only then will we see God's outstretched arm and tender heart. I know that many of us have experienced moments or even prolonged seasons of deep brokenness. We've gone through times where it feels like our sufferings have silenced the voice of God. And if you haven't, I don't want to be a downer, but don't worry, you will. We all do. I know that even this week and this year has been a very difficult time for some people in our church family. We feel crushed by the weight of our sin. Even sin from many years ago. But we feel it, don't we? Old sins cast long shadows. And we live every day in the shadow of our sin. And there are others of us who are laboring through sufferings we just can't understand. Like Job, we look at our lives, we look at what we've done and we ask God and we go, I just don't get it. I can't think of anything wrong that I did, but why? Why am I suffering as I am? We grieve the loss of those we know. We mourn the deaths of those we love. And being in isolation just makes everything so much worse, doesn't it? We don't know what to do. 
We don't know where to turn. We don't know how we'll go on. And just like Israel and just like my old friend, we know that feeling, don't we? When we feel hopeless and helpless. I have to say, if you've ever experienced anxiety before, it's a terrifying thing to experience, isn't it? You lie on the floor, struggling to breathe. Your gut churns and your head pounds. And you can't help feel overwhelmed. And then you feel a pain in your chest and you're not quite sure whether it's your muscles contracting or your heart breaking. And then you muster up the energy to pray to God. But the truth is, the words just don't come, do they? It feels like God's just not there. Or maybe even worse, he is there, but he's just not listening. It might even feel like God's indifferent to our suffering and our pain. And just like Israel, we might wonder to ourselves, why? Just don't get it. I never asked for this. Has God forgotten me? Has God forsaken me? Dear sister, dear brother, God specializes in moments of great need. Because when we are weak, then he is strong. See, the saddest thing to do would be in those moments of great weakness, to somehow insist on our own strength, to assert our own ability when it's patently obvious we're helpless. As long as we do that, we will never realize the depths of our need. And as long as we never realize the depths of our need, we will never realize the heights of God's power. We need to embrace our weakness. We need to arrive at the point of desperation for it's only there that we can embrace the gift of God's grace. Hence, Paul says to the, hence God says to the Apostle Paul, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is perfected in weakness. Dear brother, dear sister, I might summarize this passage for us today in these words. Whatever pain you might be going through, this is what God is saying. It's me. It's your God. I hear your cry. I remember my promise. The promise that I made to Abraham. The promise I kept in Jesus. If you ever are not sure, just look to the cross. Because at the cross is the ultimate proof of where I kept my every promise. And I was faithful to you then. I'll be faithful to you now. Everything in your life. Every fiber of your being. Everyone around you might tell you it's not worth trusting God. He won't pull through. But I want you to know. I hear your cry. I remember my promise. I rescue my people. If we're willing to cry out from the depths of our despair, the words that we find here in Exodus 6, they will be our sweetest comfort and our greatest relief. God is ready to act. God speaks.
when we cannot. On Christmas Eve, 1866, Annie Johnson was born. At just three years old, her mother died. And shortly after, her father succumbed to an incurable disease. This woman, Annie Flint, suffered greatly in life. She was afflicted with rheumatoid arthritis so bad that she was bedridden for decades. Cancer took over her body. Blindness began to steal her vision. She was incontinent and wore diapers for most of her life. Before she died, her body was covered in boils and bed sores, so many that you couldn't count them that she needed eight pillows to support her body. And you think to yourself, if there was anyone who deserved to cry out to God, it was this woman. And in the depths of her pain, she penned a hymn with these words. He giveth more grace when the burdens grow greater. He sendeth more strength when the labours increase. To added afflictions he addeth his mercy. To multiplied trials his multiplied peace. When we have exhausted our store of endurance, when our strength has failed ere the day is half done, when we reach the end of our hoarded resources, our Father's full giving is only begun. His love has no limit. His grace has no measure. His power, no boundary known unto men. But out of his infinite riches in Jesus, he giveth and giveth and giveth again. Friends, I won't ever presume to know what you're going through right now. But whatever your pain, be it today, tomorrow or in the future, know this, God hears your cry. He remembers his promise. He rescues his people. Act 4. Redemption. Let's pray. God of our redemption, we cry out to you from our brokenness and despair. Hear our cry. Remember your promise. Rescue your people. In Jesus' name. Amen.